If you're a dog owner, safety and welfare for your pet are of the utmost concern. But there are so many so-called experts out there that many of us don't know where to turn to get the expert advice that we need. Welcome to Taming the Wild in Your Dog with noted dog expert and author Brian Bailey. In this program, we give you the tips you need to connect with your best friend with the most practical advice. Now, here's your host, Brian Bailey. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Taming the Wild in Your Dog. And I'm joined here in the studio with my wife, Kira. Hello. And also with training supervisor, Joshua Hutter. How's it going? All right. Going well. Everything's going well. You guys are doing well today. Uh, we got a good episode coming your way. Uh, hot topic. Always a hot topic. And it, is, it gets even hotter when you title it the way that you do. We were talking about this before the show. And a, this is an article that was published by Psychology Day by Mark Beckoff. He's done quite a few books. Um, but the title, Should Dogs Be Shocked, Choked, or Pronged? Well, of course not, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and when you given. read that, it's like, okay, I'm done. Next article. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The answer is no. Let's move on from and we were discussing sensationalism. Sensationalism. That's what that is. Why in the heck would you put that down? Who in their right mind chokes a dog, uh, prongs a dog? Again, prong collars and uh, what we call pinch collars, if they're used properly, they emulate or will also feel like mom's teeth on my neck. I feel like another dog's teeth on my neck. That's all they do. It's all about using the equipment properly. That's the problem, right? Because people don't use the equipment properly. That is the problem. And they don't use it properly in every sense for skill, meaning just physical application of the device. Or they don't have and or the knowledge behind it. What is the knowledge? How do you use a remote training collar properly? Did you know you could use one without actually shocking a dog? And I don't even pop a watch battery at the end of the day. So again, when you look up the definition of shocked and you look up the definition of choked, no animal thinks about sitting, lying down, healing, coming when called if it can't breathe. So what do you think the priority is at that moment? <laughs> Yeah, getting oxygen back. Yes. <laughs> it, you, we have to keep in mind that it kind of boils down to communication. What tools do we communicate? And I don't know whoever's listening if you guys communicate with words to your dog, but that's probably not working out too well for you. Being the more intelligent species, we have to learn how to speak the dog's language in order to communicate. We can't expect them to learn our language. So therefore, we have to look at how, how do they communicate. And that's with teeth around the neck. Yep. They learn from their eyes first. They learn next to that haptic signals, touch, smell, and hearing are distant third and fourth as far as priority with signals. Can one override the other one? Of course you can. If you can't smell it and you can't see it, well, you can possibly hear it. And that's all common sense. But I think the biggest thing with this article, again, if you're going to publish something, then give something that people can relate to and also that they can take away from it something useful but right off the bat when you title it should dogs be shocked choked or pronged 
It tells you right then what you're about to read. You're not going to read anything useful. You're simply going to read an opinion. You're going to read, uh, for lack of a better word, terror, yeah. crisis management. It's, it, it's an agenda, not an article to help dog owners. So we're just not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I do want to cover a few areas because that's what we do here on Tame the Wild. We find articles like this, and this was just put out recently, just two months ago. Uh, it's a, people need to be aware of these things. So we, our job is to present both sides. You know, again, there's half truths and be aware of the half that you get because it may not be the truth. Uh, that's what we're here for, to point out the good, point out the bad, but no matter what, to give you the facts, to give you the truth surrounding anything. So as we proceed down through this article, and we'll put a link on our site on our radio page, and you guys can go to it and read it yourself. I'm just going to skip right down through it real quickly. Uh, Mark Beckoff leaned heavily on a vet tech, not a veterinarian, but a vet tech, and also a proclaimed force-free certified dog trainer. So I'm not going to get into the certification. In other words, who certified you and who certified them to be able to certify you. And we could keep that up all day long. But it's definitely just an opinionated uh, and it's an agenda. The entire opinion and the agenda here is to ban the use of anything other than I love you, I want to pet you, and I want to give you treats. Anything at all that has to do with that. So they singled out choke collars, prong collars, and of course, what they call shock collars, which again speaks volumes of their lack of knowledge as to how this device works and how is it interpreted by dogs. It just, again, I don't know anything, so let me just scream as loud as I possibly can, and that will gain me attention. Uh, when I was growing up, there used to even be a commercial. If you want to get someone's attention, whisper. Whisper. That's how I used to do it in the classroom with three-year-olds, and it works. <laughs> Amen. It does work. You don't need to scream at people. You don't need to shout, but that's what you do when you don't have anything else to use. You don't have the proper knowledge. So as we go down through this, that's what they talk about. They go, uh, there's all this bad stuff. They, 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 they cite a, a uh, research that was done, and I tried to look this guy up, and I didn't find hardly anything on this guy. A guy by the name of Anders Hallgren. And Anders Hallgren back in 1991. Okay, now we didn't switch the numbers around. That was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, it, it's 1991. 28 years ago, there was a study that he did. And the study was to determine the causes of back problems in dogs. Uh, cervical problems and back problems, uh, thoracic problems, lumbar, you name it. And he set out and what he did was he solicited the input from dog behaviors educated by himself and chiropractors. What does a chiropractor know about a dog? Uh, chiropractor, no period. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. I've uh, gone to a chiropractor twice and both can't walked out more hurt than I was before oh, I walked no. in. So well, I, I'm a little biased there. Yeah. yeah well, it, I'm just, I'm just afraid. I have the avoidance yeah. syndrome yeah. when it comes to I'm chiropractors. <laughs> First time I went to one and they made my neck sound like bubble wrap being popped. Yeah. I was good. 
I'm thinking, okay, if your skill sets off just a little bit today, you didn't wake up good, you didn't have your coffee or whatever. Now I'm paralyzed for the rest of my life. You know, you hear the worst word you want to hear is oops. And I, so again, I'm just afraid of it. But anyway, so this guy takes 424 dogs and takes his behaviors and takes his chiropractors and uh, 24 were dismissed for various reasons. So we're down to 400 and they studied and examined these dogs to determine, did they have a problem at all? And if they did, what was the possible cause? As it turns out, 26.87% of the 400 dogs had cervical neck injuries. So a little injury to their neck. Doesn't describe to what extent. Now, I will tell you this much, any animal, and it also goes into here, uh, it's very vague. They're, you don't know the ages of these animals. You don't know what they've all been subjected to uh, on a daily basis. There's just these broad stroke type assumptions that are made in this, but we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. So 26.87% of the 400 had some sort of cervical issue, cervical issue. And then it goes further down and talks about could be possible causes. And it says, in pulling, there seems to be a connection between the collar, uh, how it is handled and back problems between the collar is handled and back problems. Pulling and jerking on the leash affect especially the neck throat, in the dog. Okay. And then it goes on to say 91% of the 26.87%, it, it appears as though whatever issue they have, and again, we have no idea what degree was supposedly caused by jerking and pulling on the leash. And I can believe that. I, I, I honestly can. Um, I own a vet hospital and I understand the anatomy of the dog myself. I know that its entire center of gravity is right behind, which is going to be very, basically where the end of the neck connects to the shoulders. And that's your center of gravity. And that's where all the forces in your body come together at that one little junction. So if you pull hard, pulls hard, or if the dog pulls just a little bit at a different angle, of course, it, it, an injury can happen. Humans hurt their backs mm-hmm. on a daily basis. They, they use eggs, but of course you don't. You bend over, grab a storm, you lift in all of a sudden, you go, ow. Uh, how many times do you hurt your neck? I turn my head to the right in a real hurry, and suddenly you, you get a little catch in your, your vertebrae back there or pinching. Or you just simply sleep wrong. Yep, you sleep wrong. <laughs> you go in, and so this can happen. But anyway, there's being substantial on this. It was 28 years ago. We all get it that a dog can indeed be hurt if you don't use properly. You don't use the collar properly. I don't think it's a 28-year-old study is enough to ban leashes, choke collars, prong collars, remote training collars, you name it. Well, I the issue that I have with this, I think anything is is it vaguely says yanking and pulling on the leash. Okay. I mean, that, that is literally a, a never ending spectrum both ways of what that could potentially be. And also given the age of 1991 to give away my youth here, that was a year before I was born. Now <laughs> with that being said, I don't, I mean, I wasn't alive back then, but I know stories from trainers I've learned from and things like that, that back then they were a lot, lot more rough on dogs because was the main source of training back then. So as far as how we're training with 
prong collars and choke collars today and, and remote collars resist little to how this was back in 1991. Indeed. Uh, and also, it was done with behaviors that were by the author study. Right. Uh, it goes on to cite a few stories. Tells one about uh, at the vet clinic in which this girl worked, uh, Mary is her name. Uh, someone walked in with dog. It was a, uh, it says a dog, what kind of dog, but a dog was rushed into the clinic with a eye. Now, for those of you who don't know what prolapse means, the eye was bulging out of the socket. And when the client was asked what happened to her dog, she frankly told us she was just walking him and it happened out of nowhere. Okay, if you or if you're walking your <laughs> dog and his eye falls out of nowhere, going to have that checked. Out. There's obviously a problem between the socket and the eye, and it's correlated with the movement of the legs in a horizontal. So I'd probably just get that checked out altogether. But that's what the owner says. They go on to say, though, they make up a story for. We found out dog while on a choke call started pulling. When he saw another dog across the street, so much so that his paws came off the ground. All right. So now from an owner says, I don't know what happened. It happened out of nowhere to now the summer happens. But regardless of that, she, she ends up saying that they got lucky. The woman left her at clinic and with her a donated harness. Now I'm here to tell you. First of all, prolapsed eye. Let's don't make that into the horrible that it is. Uh, at my vet hospital, a Shih Tzu was being groomed, and it struggled. Of course they do. You know, when you're trying to trim around their face, this happens. And these dogs have bulbous eyes, pugs do, and so on and so forth. And every now and then, this does happen. It's very, this is actually very common with this breed. And the eyeball did prolapse. It came out. Um, I was there when this happened. I freaked for you. I absolutely freaked. Uh, my stress response was mobilized. I about lost it. I think I was going to pass out. But I scooped up this little shit, went running into the clinic, and Dr. Joanna Jones is way at the computer. And I go, Doctor, help me, help me, help me, save me, save me, save me. And she looks at me and goes, What? I go, The dog. She goes, And yeah, I see you're holding a dog. So what's up? I go, the, can't you see the eye? She goes, what about him? And I looked, and sure enough, it was back in. <laughs> and I told her what happened, and she said, okay, well, seeing how that happened, bring it over here to the exam table. We're going to have to clean a little bit behind the eye. So that was the hardest part about it. And again, pop it back out to clean it. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, tell me no. <laughs> no, we did not do that. No, that didn't happen. Uh, seem so stressed about it. <laughs> no, because again, you don't want it to happen, but I just believe in putting things in their proper perspective. Where should they be? Reaching a little bit of balance. Give terror credit when it's, when it's due, but don't make something out to be something. But anyway, if you really want to see how this dog's going to pull, wait till you put it in a harness. That's what uh, I was about to say. Oh, yeah. oh, now it's going to pull. And so we don't get the end of the story, but more than likely, I don't walk my dog anymore because now it really pulls the daylights out of me and I just don't want to walk anymore. So this thing just keeps on going, 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 going. Finally, this is you that I have this whole article. This is the area where I get upset big time. Um, she goes on to be quoted, 
And while it's very clear that e-collars and prong collars are used because they cause psychological stress and pain, many people don't realize that choke collars also can cause a good deal of pain, suffering, and injury to dogs who wear them. If you choose to use a restraining collar, why do you do so? Here it comes. The drum roll. If you were told you had the option to teach a child how to read by physically punishing them for every word they said incorrectly, which is option A, or by working incorrectly and rewarding the words they got correct, option B, and that you could achieve the same results no matter which way you taught the child, which way would you choose? Well, first thing you got to ask yourself is, what kind of example is that? Who does that? Yeah, who would do that? Who does that? So that's not even a real example. If you're going to give an example, give something that's real. Give something that people would actually do. If you do that to a child, you're a psycho. So guess what? All of you dog owners out there that do use a slip collar, compression collar, I don't call them choke collars, use a prong collar or remote training collar, well, you just got lumped in the same group. You're a psycho. There you go. How about that? By golly, we're all psychos because that's what we would do. We would beat the darn words into that child. Well, Good God. I also can't, I can't even tell you how many times in school I would get in trouble for not reading the books I was supposed to be reading and reading what I wanted to get to read. So therefore, I actually was getting punished for reading. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. What was that? 1990. <laughs> 2011? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. The year I graduated high school. Right. 2011. And, I'm, and I just want to talk on, uh, touch on one more area, and then we're going to get out of this darn thing. And you guys can read for yourself. But again, you know where we're going with this. Uh, they go on to say, many trainers advise against these types of callers altogether, in part because of the risk of injured dogs, yada, 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 yada. The San Francisco um, SPCA website points out also that skin on a human's neck is 10 to 15 cells whereas the skin on a dog's neck is only three to five cells thick. So therefore, if you were wearing a prong collar, would it hurt you? Imagine how the dog would feel. Okay, a couple things. Here we go again. Epidermis. First of all, I, I may have long hair on my head, but I don't have a lot of long hair on my neck. Uh, also, a dog's neck has over 200 additional muscles to support the functions that it must do. Uh, if you walk horizontally, then you need more muscles to hold your head up than if you walk vertically, and that's what we bipeds do. If you're going to carry your children, not in a, one of these car seats or or you're not going to uh, walk it down a sidewalk on a stroller, but instead you have to carry your child with your mouth for 50 to 100 miles over rough terrain, you need a neck that can support that ability. If you're going to grab an animal that is 30 times your body weight, pull it to the ground against its will, and then kill it, you need a powerful neck to support those functions. And we have not bred that functionality out of dogs. I don't care what kind of dog you have. That neck is more akin to your thigh muscle than it is to your neck. But, of course, you're a human and you always want to draw a comparison between yourself and your dog. We term it as anthropomorphism. However, stop there. 
Yes, they have a trachea. Yes, they have a larynx. Yes, they have the esophagus. They have many of the components that we have. But here's the big deal. It's surrounded by muscle. Yours is not because your neck was only designed to facilitate your ability to see. When you look left, when you look right, to turn your head. Their neck was divine. Uh, was devised uh, and implemented by nature to carry out tasks that our necks never have to do. And again, that's just a matter of taking into all this into account. You know, and, and one other thing, dogs, I haven't met too many dogs that take into account how other dogs feel when they grab them with their teeth. Uh, so when you're sitting there, how would you feel? Well, well, then why do do it to dogs? Mm-hmm. If they're concerned about feelings, what's a feeling? What is that? Is it a sensation, a sensory input, or is it an emotion that's running through my head? What is a feeling? Gosh, I just hate when we, when we stray away from facts or not accurate, and you're just trying to come up with these things to tap into the people's emotions. And all of this, the harm with it is that you scare people, which then means they don't use devices that can actually control the behavior of their dogs. And therefore, what was the number one reason, Kara, why dogs end up in animal shelters? Behavior problems. Amen. And what happens to a lot of those dogs that get put there for behavior problems, Joshua? Uh, they're put down. There you go. So, again, I guess if you could talk to a dog, hey, Put a prong on me or kill me. Well, there, I, there are trainers out there who think the dog would choose death over the prong collar. Well, they if you actually, use it to probably the way that they use it, right? you probably would. Well, and also, let's also remember that when you put a prong collar on the dog, okay, pinch your neck. That kind of hurts. Now, pinch your elbow. That's the, about the same level of nerve endings that the dog has in their neck. They're not feeling that same level of pain. The elbow nerve endings is, is that way. So tell me, would you rather have that pinch on your elbow or death? Yeah. And the last thing on this whole article, they go into stories and they talk about a girl who brings a dog to a dog park. And, and then when it keeps jumping on people, she uses a remote training collar. And they say that that causes the dog to be antisocial uh, because it's should not be corrected for jumping on people. It was simply trying to say hello. Well, obviously, this person doesn't mind being jumped on and obviously gets jumped on by very small dogs and doesn't get jumped on at about 30 miles an hour by an 80-pound animal. Not all of us like that. Uh, But it's always with dogs that we seem to put so much emphasis on their emotions, how they think, their feelings. Yeah, all of all of that should be taken into account. It is a living mammal. It's a social mammal. All of that does. But how much do we put in any given area? Everything that we focus on should be about what can we do to better the life of the dog with the human, not forgetting the human, not forsaking the humans because we live together. What can we do? How can we work together? And I'm here to tell you, Just rainbows and unicorns don't work. It doesn't work for humans. It doesn't work for dogs. It's why a dog will bite another dog. It's why a dog will bite a human. It's done to influence the behavior of the receiver. 
They do it, so why should we not do it to them? We do it to one another as well. And why do we get all hyped up over all this stuff when we don't really, how about a bull, for example? How about a bull? Does that thing have feelings? Does it have emotions? Can it sense pain? But yet, I don't see anyone throwing up a big red flag about rings that are put in their nose, and you should one day take a look at that and see how that gets done. They also don't raise a lot of fire about using bull hooks or ankas with elephants to control elephants. Not a lot of fire going on that. Yeah, there's a welfare animal act that is screaming a little bit about it now, but they didn't say anything about it for about four decades. Um, did you know that lions and tigers and zoos have 18,000 times less space than they do in the wild? But guess who takes their little children to see lions and tigers in zoos? Mm -hmm. We do. So again, people, stop all this sensationalism, this terrorism on paper. Put out an article that says, hey, you know, there are these devices out there. So how do we use them? If we elect to use them, and that is a dog owner choice, and that choice should not be taken away from them. And when they tried that up in Toronto, Canada recently, they tried to ban all these devices. At That lasted one week. Even the council members were in an uproar. It lasted one week. And they want to cite all these countries over the European Union that don't allow these devices. Huh. They're still being used. There's all over the internet. You can see them. They're called what? Chameleons? The chameleon. Yes. Yeah. They're, oh, yeah. People are going to do what they need to do because they want to live with a dog. We want dogs in our lives, but we have to have dogs that don't eat us or our children or other humans. And we have to have dogs that lower our blood pressure and don't raise it. And to get that thing done, you're going to have to use equipment. And somewhere along the line, Somewhere along the line, some a little bit of discomfort, a little bit of stress response is going to be activated, and sometimes even a little pain. Pain motivates. That's why it's out there. So when you bend over and you don't use your legs and you hurt your back, that's pain saying, hey, next time, uh, try to modify your technique a little bit and use those legs. Again, we're talking healthy levels. We're talking natural levels. We're talking cause and effect. And this species should not be exempt from that. Because if you don't do it, something else will. Because it's here. And we need to get our stinking heads out of whatever little rainbow unicorn cloud that we live in and quit putting crap like this out. Same Shame on you, psychology today. And shame on you, Mark Beckoff, for putting it. And shame on you, Mary, for trying to use these horrible stories to terrorize people. People learn the facts. These are, this is not factual. It's not true. It's only out there because you have an agenda. Yes, I'll admit all these devices you correctly, but it's about, so therefore it's about education. Learn how to use it correctly. Educate people. Spend time doing that. That's how it gets done. If you're not part of the solution, then you're just all part of the problem. That's all you are. And we've got to start working together. This is, again, another one of these articles that just comes out. But every two months, here it comes. Some crap like this. And I just get fed up with it. And I'm one of these days, the American public will too. All right, so you can read the rest of it. Now we're going to get on into some questions because we've had a lot of uh, viewers and listeners that have sent questions in. And, man, 
it's just on a roll. We just keep getting better and better question. Now, again, we don't grade your question. <laughs> well, we, we welcome any question that you have. But, man, some these of these lately ones. have been, yeah. wow. The harder the better. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'll let you answer those then. <laughs> <laughs> that question is so easy. I'm going to let Joshua answer it. <laughs> so hit me up, Kira. What do we have? Okay. So we have a dog that is constantly scratching on and jumping on the door to the backyard. What can be done to make him stop? He's driving the whole household crazy. Simple. Open the door. <laughs> okay. Hey, you got to have comic relief, especially when you get over a hot topic like we just talked about. All right. Uh, it really doesn't matter if the dog's jumping on the door on the inside or the outside. Most dogs typically want to be inside with the owners, but some see squirrels and other things out in the yard, and all they want to do is go outside. Our cat does that. He yeah, we saw our cat Frank doing that the <laughs> other day, just scratching on the window there, trying to get outside, thinking maybe that window will finally just disappear if I scratch long enough. <laughs> so, yeah, it can be irritating. It can also cause damage to the door, and which then can cause harm to the animal. Next thing you know, you have splinters, you have sharp objects, so on and so forth. So how do you make it stop? Well, there's a couple of ways, and I think you have to kind of pick per the situation, meaning me. If it is an outside dog, my dog is outside and the scratching is being done to make me get up and come open the door and let them in, then I'm going to make that go away. Why? Because, well, you may not be home. Maybe you left the dog outside. You may be upstairs. You may be preoccupied. You can't go open the door. So therefore, now we just start having this really damaged door. So I'm going to make the door hot. So here we go. This is where I am going to use a remote training collar. And I'm going to press the button, start off at an irritant level. Irritant. What's an irritant? Enough for the animal to go, okay, what the heck was that? And mm, I'm, that was kind of weird. And okay, I'm good. I just don't know if I want to do this again. But if they do, same results. And because of natural pairing, no different than if I walk up and touch a hot stove, I don't yell at Kira and go, why'd you do that? <laughs> now, I may say or ask, why did you leave the stove on? But I won't blame Kira for my hand being burned by the stove. That's called natural pairing. If we have the dog associate that the door did something to it when it scratched on it, then they won't continue to scratch. Problem solved. There you go. Neat thing about dogs, they only repeat behaviors that they've had success with in the past. They carry one suitcase with them with all future encounters. Called success. They don't drag a suitcase around that we humans drag around called failures. They don't. So I scratch on the door. Ah, dang, what the heck was that? I scratch again. There it is again. Hmm. Well, they may say, well, I still want to get inside. I can handle that like an all-day sucker. Yeah, it's weird, but if I scratch hard enough, I'll make that furless biped get up off that sofa and walk over here and open this door for me. Okay, turn it up. At some point, they'll say, uncle, and the, the problem, over. And the beautiful thing about that, it doesn't matter if you're home or if you're not home, if you're paying attention, if you're not paying attention, guess who quit scratching on your door? Problem solved. So that's how I would get rid of that. And I'd also do it the same way on the inside. Now, again, of course, if you're housebreaking or whatever, and just your desire to have the dog scratch the door. And by the way, that's where a lot of it starts with 
with dogs on the inside. Those bells, right? Bells are just having the desire to scratch on the door. So in the beginning, here you go. Okay, if you scratch on the door, I will let you outside. But I was doing this because instead of just keeping an eye on you, I'm going to be a little bit lazy and hope that you tell me when you want to go potty. So I don't have to worry about it. I can just keep binging on Netflix and just doing my work here. And I don't have to pay one bit of attention to you. You let me know when you want to go out because you'll go ring that bell, which the bell is hanging right by the door. So if you're a dog, hey, bell, door, it's all close enough for government work, huh? Right? The result is someone gets up and lets me out the stinking door. So now all of a sudden, let's fast forward. Housebreaking's done. Dog's a year old. It's 80 pounds. It's got big because you haven't had those things trimmed anytime soon. And you wonder, why does it scratch on my door? Well, you taught it to. <laughs> you taught it. It <laughs> learned a long it time wants ago. It to go outside. It doesn't yeah. have to go potty. It might want to play with the leaves. All behavior is directed towards influencing the behavior of something else. So, therefore, that's why it does it. That's how I'm going to make it go away. Same way. Remote train calls my best tool. And if not, a long line on the inside dog, you jump on door, I snap, and there you go. Cause and effect. You jump on door, boing, ow, you'll quit doing it. And it's great. It's wonderful because now you don't have to worry about the dog tearing up your door. I would actually add one other prong to that approach too. I would actually, once the dog is no um, going after the door, then teach the dog door manners because that will only solidify okay, well, I'm not supposed to do this. What am I supposed to do? So teach the dog how to go through doors in a controlled manner so that you're, you're not having the issue of, okay, the door, the door scratching is now complete, but the moment that the door opens, the dog's bolting through that door, which ultimately is what the dog's trying to get to happen when it's scratching. So, you know, you, you're attacking it from two different groups. And when you say door manners, give me a, for instance, what we, uh, sitting at the thing for some sort of to say you can come in or out. A lot of people will let the dog just bolt through the door. I do both in and out. Very good because an open door is an open door. You bet. Yeah. Uh, depend on, it doesn't really matter what territories give you access to, inside territory, outside territory. All right. Any questions, Kara? Yep. Okay. This one is interesting because I have no idea what this is. I'm planning on adopting two puppies from the same litter, but people have been warning me against it. They say they will have litter mate syndrome. What is that and how do I prevent it from happening? Joshua? <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> litter mate syndrome. So from my understanding, litter mate syndrome is when two dogs grow up in the same litter. They're pretty much all they've ever really had as far as socialization. Um, I've even heard it described as when two dogs socialize so much together that even when they are given the other opportunity to socialize with others, they still only ever play with each other and they develop through a dependency and they start operating from each other. They don't spend any time wanting to hang out with the owner of the dog. They only want to hang out with each other. So that's my understanding of litter mate syndrome. Hmm. Well, of course, I'm immediately, and I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know a lot about litter mate syndrome, right? But I know a lot about young dogs and older dogs. So a couple of things with that. First of all, that describes almost like a 
you watch these TV shows where they want to move abroad so that they can immerse themselves in the culture. Yeah, they want to be indigenous. I want to be just like those Indians over there in Mumbai. You betcha. Oh, yeah. It says two months later. Two months later, they're living in a community with a bunch of expats, living with a bunch of Americans. Okay, so all you do is change neighborhood from America to Mumbai. Uh, this is, I guess that'd be a, almost like a human equivalent to littermate syndrome in that you thrive on what is familiar to you. Uh, I do know this. If that does occur, then that's a genetic component. Those are weak dogs to begin with because the natural instinct of your dog is to become fiercely independent. Even though I have a pack, even though I work within a pack, I'm still independent. In other words, the reason why predators became social to begin with was because I need you to help me survive. Therefore, I won't kill you as long as you help me survive. And that's how it started eons and eons ago. So the dogs were designed to be fiercely independent at, during the majority of the time and then come back together during other times. Uh, that's why 87% of wolves will disperse when they're two years of age. They will leave the pack to, to go form their own pack. Puppies growing up, first of all, won't even realize and never viewed their other puppy as a brother or a sister. You're just another pack member. And if I can't live without you, then that's an animal that has a unnatural and imbalanced secure base attachment to the other puppy. And that does happen. I can see that happening because minus the human, if you have the availability to be with a puppy, pick your kind. Hence, I used the example of the Americans going to a foreign country. You hang around with um, and minus that, though, you don't have a puppy to grow up with, then I deal a lot with dogs who developed unnatural and imbalanced, secure base attachments to the humans, meaning my relationship with you has morphed from as a young dog, I dig you, to as an older dog, I can't live without you, and I will certainly perish without you. Hence why we start getting into separation, anxiety, uh, a lot of issues like that. So to me, anytime, what, what do we tell people, Kira, all the time? Anytime you get a puppy, any, know this. This is an absolute fact, and don't ever let anyone tell you different. Anytime you purchase or adopt a puppy, you do not know for certain what the outcome will be two years later. And anyone who tells you what will happen, they're wrong. Genetics doesn't even tell us what will happen, but she tells us what can happen. You can be pre, and if we have animals that have SBAs later in life that are unnatural and imbalanced, then that actually was set up while they were in their mother's womb. So me, I'm not going to worry about that yet. I'm going to pick two puppies, and I'm going to give you another piece of advice. If you do want to get two puppies. Try to get opposite genders. Yeah, that's where I was going to go. Number one rule of all time, uh, competition and any challenges are most fierce within their own gender. It's Papa Wolf who's concerned mostly about his oldest son, not his oldest daughter, and vice versa with Mama Wolf. Uh, always within his own gender. 
if people come to me all the time with two dogs and they say, Brian, I want you to help me make these dogs get along. And I, I always call, I'm glad you used the word make because you have two males. They're the same size, about the same age. It's a condition known as the principle of resemblance. And the only way they're going to successfully cohabitate is by making them do so. So go ahead and get your two puppies. I'm not going to worry too much about this. No. And if I had any advice, start young with the obedience. Start young with the engagement on you so that that engagement on each other is not um, their primary life day in and day out. It's just puppy, 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 not really ever really engaging with handlers or anything like that. And separate them. Yeah. Separate yeah. them. Don't let them be together all the time. Separate them. Take one to a dog park, leave the other one at home, then switch them out. How about if one gets walked by one person, someone gets walks the other dog, and we leave at different times. Separate them. By being separate from one another, then you learn how to cope with that. You learn how to, you develop mechanisms that allow you to, when this stress happens, when you become stressed because you don't have your litter mate, your little litter life ring. Well, then what do you do? Do you adapt? You know, nature gave all of us the ability to flexibly adapt all the time, flexibly adapt. So, and also look for the signs early on because us humans, we always find it so cute when the puppy is young and, oh, he wants to get over to the other puppy bad or he, you know, he's nervous without me. It's so cute that you're, you're digging yourself a grave. I mean, you, you have to look at those signs early and, and kind of it's interview. sad, but some owners enjoy that. Oh, I know. Oh, that's an, an upcoming book titled The Impenetrable Light. Yeah. <laughs> there, yeah, yeah. there are owners who actually enjoy their dogs having separation anxiety. They love feeling like I am your life ring. Uh, now we have to go hire a shrink <laughs> yeah. because we got some issues going on there. Okay, hopefully that'll put you a little bit at ease there. It's so rare. Uh, I don't know who came up with this term, but again, in, in all my years, I had to ask Joshua before the show, what is littermate syndrome? <laughs> so that tells you how prevalent it is out there because I've got my thumb as best I can on just about everything that occurs in, in the dog ownership world. And it was new to me. So, hey, great question. Appreciate it. Next okay. one. Here's a good question too. I have an eight-month-old pup who is properly crate trained and understands to go potty outside, but he has recently peed in my son's bed twice while my son was in it. What is going on? This puppy gets plenty of time outside to go potty and doesn't go anywhere else in the house. Okay, a couple of assumptions I make. One, this is occurring at nighttime. Because the boy is in the bed. But nowadays, you never know. Mm -hmm. Teenagers are in their beds all day long. <laughs> they lay in there with a laptop on their chest, and that's about it. Uh, but I'm going to assume that this is a young boy, and his puppy has been sleeping with his bed. Okay, when we crate, you may have heard this. One of the uh, areas that you need to pay attention to is size. It's too big. I'll simply go potty at one end and lie down at the other end. We see that even with some of our kennels. We have kennels that are four feet by eight feet long, 32 square feet. What happens if I really, 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 really have to go? Back there, go potty back there, and I'll come lay up here at the front. We see this so much with young dogs who are through their breaking training, 
They sleep up on the bed, and sometime in the middle of the night, they go, oh, I have to go potty. But that first step is a long ways down. And so I'm afraid to step off into a, the dark abyss, meaning top of the dogs are actually phobic. They're a little bit afraid of heights. And therefore, hmm, what do I, what do, I do? Well, I'll, I'll just go down here by the, I'll just go over here. So not so much that the boy is in the bed. I would not imagine that that would be the a major issue here or a big component of it. It is, I'm a pup. And all during the rest of the day, I'm either my tight little snug crate so I don't go in there, or I'm attached to human being, and that's kind of dangerous to go in the house when you're attached to human beings. But at nighttime, it's dark, it's quiet, I'm not attached to anyone, I'm not in a snug little crate, and I've got all this room up here, and I have to go. So what would I do about this? First of all, well, here we go. Sorry, son. Sorry, uh, little boy, uh, your dog is now going to sleep in a crate. It can sleep in a crate next to your bed, but it's not going to in your bed. Hilda has aged enough that it can physically control its bladder. It can control its bowels. Uh, look at children. Again, there are times in which we can make comparison between dogs and children because we have multi-mammal, and those are fine. Young children. How many, how many times do you change diapers on a, on a child that's about four? Oh, a lot. Yeah. How many times do they go when they're young? Even doing potting, how many times do they go? You're dealing with a slow, maturing mammal. I cannot say that enough. And that's why housebreaking will never take seven days. And if you got a dog that was housebroken in seven go buy a lottery ticket because you are in. You have a special someone is looking after you. Or your dog was already housebroken before you got it. I mean, there's just all sorts of things. But anyway, here's how I'm going to solve it. You're going to sleep in a crate next to my bed. You're not going to sleep in my bed till you prove that you won't go potty in the middle of the night. Do you have anything to add to that, Josh? Yeah, and also just keep in mind a preference. Just because your dog prefers to go outside means that it doesn't know that it's not a go inside. So the eight-month-old um, dog is well within the age range of the, if you catch this dog potting in the house, make sure that dog is very clear. It should not be potting in the house because there's a, there's a big difference between the dog going, oh, I'll just wait until during the day. I know they're about to take me out about this time, but then at night they're going, well, I'm not really having that option, so I guess I'll have to go with my second choice in the bed. So make sure that the dog does understand that it's not only their preference to go outside, it's mandatory. And if I add one last little thing on that, because you highlighted the eight months old, this isn't, I don't care if it's eight, eight years. There are dogs that go potty in the bed, regardless of what their age is. Some of them are older. They're, they have incontinent issues and things of that sort. But many people adopt dogs that are older and aren't the least bit housebroken. They were outside dogs. They lived on the farm. They lived in the backyard. They don't, they don't understand the concept. Why can't I just go when I feel like going? There, there were no boundaries ever put on them. I said, hey, dog, just so you know, inside here, no. Outside there, oh, yeah, all day. You can go out there. So they have to be trained. So this advice doesn't just pertain to an eight-month-old puppy. It pertains to any dog if it starts going potty in your bed. 
All right. I think we have time for just one more question and then we're going to get ready to wrap this show up. So shoot me a good one. Here we go. I just, an adult dog, he's seven years old from my local shelter. The dog name is, you ready for this? I'm ready. Groucho. I'm not ready. (laughs) (laughs) And has been all his life. He was an owner surrender. I hate that name, but I'm afraid if I give him a new name now, he won't understand when I'm talking to him. Can you give an adult dog a new name? I want this one. Go. Okay. Because I I actually, I have a lot of people that ask me this often because we get a lot of shelter dogs around here. Um, Yes. Change the name. My, my philosophy on this is you have no idea what that previous owner has associated that dog's name with. It could have been the dog's disciplinary form. You know, people always say, Groucho, you know, they kind of, <laughs> they kind of yell at the dog or whatever. So it may not have a good kind of association to the dogs. The dog may want his name right, changed. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> change yeah. my name. Yeah. Definitely change it. Yeah. I, and it, it's almost nothing. A lot of people, oh, it's going to be months before they know the dogs. No, no. No, it's adults. Human adults change their names, and they learn very quickly onto different names. Me personally, when I was growing, my middle name is Kevin. I didn't like that name. I didn't like it at all. So when I was 10 years old, I changed it. I changed it to Brian. That was my other name. And... I refused to answer to Kevin. Now, it got me in trouble a few times, but eventually I won. I wore everyone down. You can do that. You can do it with a dog as well. A name at the end of the day typically is nothing more than a complex signal Mm -hmm. because you say, Groucho, sit. Groucho, down. Groucho, come. And then when most dogs, I think their name is... Stop yeah. it. I heard worse names than yeah. that. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was just going to say that on the air. I said, you have the bleep sensor ready? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but do, yeah. You can change your name of that dog all the time. It, and it does. It happens probably, I don't know how many thousands of times a day. Dogs are adopted from shelters. And that name just doesn't fit. It just doesn't work. And I would even go and say is I, I actually recommend that you change it just because, again, you have no idea what it's associated with. I mean, if you don't feel like it fits or if you had another name in mind that you would like to have a dog named this, by all means. Well, you know, Dave comes to three different names. So, I mean, why can't they have two names? <laughs> and their old name and their new name. <laughs> and that's a very good point, too, because we've had many clients that the husband spoke one language the wife spoke another, and then I spoke whatever comes out of my mouth. (laughs) And the dog picked up on everything, everything. You have someone saying, couche, you know, to lie down, and then the other one's saying, plots. And then I'm just saying, down. Dogs are incredibly intelligent. It's when, remember, and I think it's important to keep in mind, hearing is a distant third sense. I learn with my eyes. So I could sit there. I trained a dog one time to just respond off of military commands, just for the fun of it, just to see if it could be done. So I tell him, attend, and he'd sit. I say, parade, rest. He'd lay down. I say, forward, march. He'd take off walking. (laughs) You could say, scuba nog, and teach the dog to come to you. Next thing you know, you're out there with all your friends at the dog park. You go, scuba nog. 
You should do that. I would do that just because the looks that you'd get from everybody. I saw, else. I saw a hilarious video, somebody teaching their dog how to play dead with the command from like Harry Potter spells. So oh. they were like, <laughs> you know, whatever those spells are. But yeah, but, but it was just hilarious because it looked like they were doing the magic <laughs> on the dog. Yeah. Yep. No problem with that. Change the name, have some, have some fun with it. If you simply attach the name to a lot of commands or a lot of different behaviors, that dog is going to pick it up in no time. And the neat thing about them, again, they only carry with them into the future successes. They're going to drop anything that doesn't work, anything that is not reinforced, all signals. And again, a name is nothing more than a signal. It's a signal that precedes another signal. Signals that are not reinforced will always degrade to R0. We call that response zero. So it'll happen. Make it happen. Piece of cake. Anything else? We got about three minutes left. Well, there is one, but I kind of want to save it. You want to save it? Yeah, it's a good one, and I think it'll take you longer than. So we were, minutes. we were, uh, we were talking about languages and and foreign countries today, and I have a kind of a interesting story from a personal experience with one of our clients. Um, we had a dog that just went home a couple days ago, and the owners, one is a Irish lady, and one is a German lady, and she was talking about how here they've only been in the states for just a little while i think and uh months, yeah. yeah and they're talking about how uh in germany dogs are so much more well behaved there because the society does not address other people's dogs it's kind of like a, a cultural norm that you don't you don't talk to somebody else's dog you don't reach down and just pet strange dogs. And, and she was talking about how here, every dog you see sees a new person and gets excited. I just thought that was super interesting that, you know, in, in Germany, that there's that kind of social aspect that really American needs really bad. Yeah. Huh, maybe I, I thought the dog's name was Nine. I reached down to pet it and I hear Nine. <laughs> yeah. And I go, oh. And they said, Nine, Nine. I'm like, nine, Nine it is. Maybe 99. I don't know. Well, now you answered. My question, I was wondering all this time, was the dog's name nine or what? <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. Well, guys, um, next week, we've got, we're going to start a two-part series on a very deep and dark subject, and it's about mental illnesses that dogs have. So many people don't realize that dogs can suffer from many of the same mental illnesses we do. They can, there are phobias. Can they become depressed? They can. Not on the same level that we do, but enough. And this is going to unravel for you, hopefully, that you'll be able to recognize if you do have a dog that is suffering from illness, these episodes should help teach you how to recognize it and then what can be done about it. Uh, so stay tuned. That'll be a two-part episode, and we're going to dive as deep into it as we possibly can and explain it as easy as Well, then, you guys have a great piece out there change your dogs if you and uh yeah check out the article if you if you're really bored you just want to be something that'll just get your blood pressure up all right we'll see you guys next time take care thanks for tuning in this week please join host brian bailey again for another edition of taming the wild and your dog next wednesday at 10 a.m pacific time and 1 p.m eastern time on the voice america variety channel your dog's welfare and your life may depend on it